Hey, this is Mohal Joshi from Los Angeles, California. I follow Indian foreign policy and defense with a special focus on Asia. You can follow me on Twitter at Mohal Joshi. Hey, this is Kishore Narayan from Bengaluru in India. I am an international relations expert specializing in global security, conflict resolution, and international negotiation. My focus areas include peace building and digital diplomacy. You can find me on Twitter at Veggie Diplomat. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of India Rising Strategic Affairs Conversations with Mohan and Kishore, a show in which we analyze the happenings from around the world and their impact on India. Before we begin, we have a programming note to share. We had been receiving multiple requests from our listeners to make our episodes available on podcast apps. We have heard you and we are now present there as well. Starting episode 13, you can now listen to all new episodes in SoundCloud and anywhere else you listen to your podcast. That's not all. You can also listen to our earlier episodes as well in those platforms. Remember that we will continue to be present on YouTube as well. Today's episode will be a tribute to Sri Manohar Parikar, the Chief Minister of Goa who recently passed away owing to long-term illness. Uh, we will basically be focusing on his stint as the Defence Minister in 2015 and 2016. Uh, so Mohal, uh, when the NDI government uh, took, took charge in 2014, uh, there was a hunt for the, uh, who the next uh, Raksha Mantri would be. And to begin with, NDA played it safe. They had uh, Arun Jaitley uh, handle multiple portfolios in a, uh, in addition to uh, Raksha Mantralaya as well. But uh, oh, after, a, after I think uh, seven to eight months, uh, India uh, eventually ended up having a full-time Raksha Mantri. So uh, can, you, can you start off with how he came into the post and take on from there? Yeah, so as you rightly attributed, like uh, Arun Jaitley had uh, multiple portfolios and uh, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi was looking for a full-time defense minister who, he, I mean, basically you needed, since a uh, defense ministry is such an important ministry, he needed one person who could dedicate all his time and efforts to this crucial ministry without splitting it like what Arun Jaitley had done. So, uh, I mean, Manohar Parikar initially was uh, reluctant to move to uh, New Delhi because his heart lay in Goa, as every everyone knows. But uh, eventually, like uh, Prime Minister Modi was able to convince him to uh, come to New Delhi. Now, being a newcomer to New Delhi, I mean, after all, he had spent all his time in local politics in Goa. Uh, he took some time to adjust to his surroundings, but eventually. I mean, uh, he took like a fish to water, which in coincidentally is also his favorite food fish. Uh, <laughs> he became very well versed uh, with all the affairs of the defense ministry. So mm -hmm. like the, as you know, the most important uh, uh, acquisition or the project of the defense ministry has been Rafal, which has always been in the news for the past at least couple of years due to the various uh, allegations of scams around it which have been proven to be false by the way so in yeah. rafa like uh, i had like written last year that 
uh, after the Rafal was selected for the MMRCA contract in 2012, the final negotiations under the UPA government uh, got stuck until the demitted office in May 2014. I mean, the issues were several, like uh, uh, due to the amount of man hours required to produce the aircraft in India under HAL. And uh, there were a couple of issues regarding uh, who takes ownership of the quality of work done with HAL. Now, due to this, like uh, Manor Parikar realized that we were going nowhere with DASO in terms of the MMRCA. Now, it wasn't clean and simple that if the negotiations with DASO were not working out, the defense procurement policy didn't allow to negotiate with the next lowest L2 bidder, the Eurofighter. So now India was in a quandary. So in consultations with, uh, he brought this up to the attention of the prime minister who to break out of this uh, circular logjam where they couldn't agree to everything. They signed a deal to buy 36 uh, Rafale fighter jets directly from France in a government to government deal. Uh, incidentally, a few days after this purchase was made, uh, Defense Minister Manor Parika Sejisa for the Rafale that it is a strategic purchase which should not have gone through an RFP or a competitive tender. I mean, he understood the importance of this and why uh, there was such a circum uh, when she was like, route was taken to arrive this. So he had the strategic foresight to uh, do that. I won't go into much of the details because it will take a whole podcast of itself on what I mean by this, but uh, uh, he helped break out of this logjam of where we couldn't close out the original deal with uh, DASA. And we have uh, actually covered uh, most of this in our very first episode uh, mm -hmm. of yeah. India Rising itself. So yeah, yeah it would yeah. be a repetition. Yeah. yeah, so for listeners who are more interested in this, uh, please refer to uh, I believe it will be the second half of episode one where we go yes. into the Rafale deal in pretty much detail. So continuing with aviation, another place where he left his mark was the, the LCA Tejas Mark 1A. So initially for the light combat aircraft Tejas Mark 1, the IF uh, placed an initial order of 40 airplanes. Now, there, you, there was going to be a future uh, upgraded Mark II version, but the IF was reluctant to place orders because there were a couple of issues. One was the production of Mark I airplanes wasn't proceeding as quickly as anticipated. And the Mark II was quite a few years away in the early or the mid-2020s, uh, where it would have been probably coming to fruition. Now, there was an issue that what would happen to HAL's work in the interim, especially when we have a uh, issue of uh, depleting fighter squadron levels. So uh, Manor Parikar, like as suggested by HAL, pushed for an interim Mark A variant, which is not as advanced as a Mark II, but has a uh, quite a few upgrades over the Mark I uh, version. Any, uh, helped to push for a decision to purchase 83 Mark 1A aircraft. So it would give like a 40 Mark 1 and 83 Mark 1A. Uh, so there would be some continuous work for hell. And also we would not be facing this uh, quandary of 
should we wait for Mark II or should we go for more Mark I planes? Uh, and there was a serious threat back then that if the Mark II orders didn't come through, the LCA program after producing the 40 Mark I airplanes would have completely been shut down and would have been a big blow to indigenous defense production in India in the aircraft, uh, in the realm of aircraft. So this was another place where uh, he sort of like as one of the articles put in, he was able to untie the guardian knot, the proverbial guardian knot. Uh, another place uh, where he left a big influence was the uh, artillery. So now Indian Army, as everyone knows, since the Beaufort scandal broke out, we were reluctant to buy any more artillery pieces. Many times uh, tenders have been floated just to be cancelled for a whole host of reasons. Now, during his tenure, he decided to clear a proposal to purchase 814 artillery guns with 100 to be imported and rest to be manufactured in India by Bharat Forge, uh, LNT, Tata mm -hmm. and uh, various companies. The CCS, uh, the Cabinet Committee on Security in 2016 approved, also approved the purchase of two more uh, Pinaka multi-barrel rocket launcher regiments. I mean, we be I believe we had four of them and also one more regiment of the Brahmos supersonic cruise missiles. So this was a, a good additions to not only artillery, but also the multi-barrel rocket launch systems and also the Brahmos supersonic cruise missiles in the uh, the land-to-land -land version of it. Uh, ammunition spares and equipment also was a huge issue for uh, the Indian Armed Forces when it took charge. Now, as per a CAG report, the uh, the stocks of certain types of ammunitions and spares in certain cases had fallen to as low levels as it would last for just 10 days of in conflict or war so if there was a i mean we the it didn't escalate to a huge extent in the recent uh, skirmishes with pakistan over the two days but if there was a prolonged conflict there was a huge issue of uh, we us running out of ammunition and spares so Manor Parikar asked the Ministry of Defense to invoke the government's emergency financial powers to sign contracts with arms manufacturers to cover these uh, extreme shortfalls. Also, uh, there was a contract deal to acquire 1.86 lakh bulletproof jackets. Now, unfortunately, this was scrapped when none of the competitors met the standards laid down by army. And what we had to do is instead we had to do a purchase of 50,000 jackets in 2016 to cover this demand. Now, this is extremely crucial for uh, counterintelligence operations, uh, sorry, insurgency operations in uh, Jammu and Kashmir and also against uh, the Maoists in the uh, Maoist affected areas where uh, such bulletproof jackets would help uh, lessen the amount of lives lost uh, due to this uh, counter insurgency uh, operations. Um, another thing where Manor Parika worked hard was the OROP, which is the one rank, one pension demand by military veterans who had served in the armed forces. Now, this demand had been since several years, even during the tenure of the previous governments, but it wasn't, uh, not much had moved. Now, the the BJP government had promised uh, in the run-up to the 2014 elections 
to implement OROP. Now, Manor Parikar was deeply involved in the discussions for ORRP. He even held uh, several rounds of talks with veterans, including some meetings in his office. He also helped in working on the arithmetic behind the massive new outlay which would be required to cover OROP. So he was deeply involved in like uh, OROP and it, he helped. Uh, and this came into fruition during his tenure as a defense minister. Uh, now, coming to the surgical strikes, the everybody knows that he was the defense minister when we did surgical strikes in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir in 2016. Uh, after the Uri attacks. But I think another thing which is missed out by many is the original surgical strike, which happened in Myanmar in 2015, <laughs> when we crossed over the border to destroy the camp of NSCNK was under his uh, leadership. So now this was a paradigm shift in India's uh, earlier policy of uh, the border being a sarcosant and not crossing the border with its neighbors. So this was to show that if India's internal security was threatened, we will not hesitate to cross over to inflict harm on the non-state adversaries taking shelter in other nations' territories. Uh, <clears throat> now, coming to the defense procurement policy, uh, Manor Parikar had appointed a committee of experts to review the defense proc procurement procedure. Now, the committee had proposed several revisions to the policy, such as increasing the limit on purchase amounts at which offsets would be applicable. I believe it was like a pretty low amount and it was raised so that it doesn't happen that a lot of the deals get entangled in like uh, getting the offsets worked out. Uh, there was a focus on procuring more locally designed and manufactured military hardware with an emphasis in make in India. Uh, to allow single vendor purchases, uh, strategic partnership. I think the strategic partnership is could be if things work out well in the future. One of the big decisions that uh, could work for us uh, well in the future. So what the uh, strategic partnership uh, model was that the Ministry of Defense was looking for long-term partnerships with private players to build up additional capacities in six strategic uh, segments such as aircraft and helicopters, warships and submarines, armored vehicles, missiles and command and control and critical materials. Now the, the strategic partnership model came much into place after he demitted office in 2018 but the discussions were started during his time and uh, hopefully in the future this would Pay rich dividends for our for the Indianization pro program in our defense forces. Uh, another important purchase which happened during his tenure was the purchase of the Chinook and the Apache uh, helicopters. So we did place orders for 22 Apache attack helicopters and 15 Chinook heavy lift helicopters in a deal worth over two billion. Now, the negotiations for this helicopter deal, which were not completed during the previous government tenure, were finally completed during his time. And I believe I just read a news article today that the first Chinook helicopters are going to be inducted into the uh, armed forces, I think, this week or uh, today. Correct? You sure? Yeah, uh, this week. Correct. Yeah. So that would be like something 
which was decided maybe uh, during like Manohar Parikas time as a defense minister is you are seeing the results today itself you know now uh, Manohar Parikar has been like said to be like a voracious reader with attention for fine detail he also saw the foresight for long-term planning for the military versus his ad hoc system of purchases where we just buy something on emergency purchase or we buy something instead of buying in bulk we buy just a few uh, hardware military equipment so one of the examples of his uh, foresight was that when he ordered a 15 year long term plan to purchase to review the air defense systems uh, up to 2027 so once the uh, analysis was done uh, we and they factored in the S-400 uh, long-range uh, air defense missile system into account. What they found out was due to the wide range of the S-400, we would not have a requirement to purchase a significant amount of short and medium-range air-to-air missile systems. Like as per reports, it was like almost 100 systems less. So now purchasing like less, like 100 less short and medium-range air missile systems would have led to a saving of like 49,300 crore. So this is like some of the foresight, like where a long-term planning would have immediate benefits for you, where you do not require as much hardware as you had anticipated before, and you end up saving money, which could be then allocated to other critical defense purchases. Uh, Manor Parikar also uh, set up a committee of experts for uh, in November 2015 to review the service and pension matters which had resulted in disputes, grievances and litigation. Now there were still there are a lot of cases between the, there's a uh, tug of war between the armed forces veterans and even serving members versus the Ministry of Defense in a, a lot of court cases. So a committee of experts was set up and they gave a lot of recommendations uh, which were implemented to help uh, resolve as much as possible the grievances of the uh, armed forces. A couple of uh, uh, major agreements which were signed uh, also during his tenure was LAMOA, which is the Logistics uh, Exchange Memorandum of Agreement, an Indian-specific version of the Logistics uh, Support Agreement, which was signed during his time uh, where and Manohar Parikar was involved uh, heavily in the discussions regarding it. This is basically to uh, exchange uh, uh, where U.S. ships and personnel would could re refuel and resupply at Indian ports and vice versa. Yeah, uh, and we spoke <clears throat> and we spoke about it in episode four when we were discussing about the two plus two dialogue uh, that India and the U.S. had between the defense minister and uh, minister of external affairs on mm -hmm. our side and uh, the uh, secretary of defense and the secretary of state on the u.s side yeah yeah and uh, the last one i wanted to point out one of the major achievements was uh, the malabar exercise now the malabar exercise has been a long-running annual exercise with two permanent members originally the india and the u.s um, now in 2015, 
uh, Japan, which was uh, it had observer status, was finally added as a permanent member of this exercise going forward. So this has uh, institutionalized like a a good trilateral relationship and uh, annual exercise of the three navies between India, US, and Japan uh, going forward. I mean, Australia is still as an observer status, but hopefully in the future we can also include them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is uh, <clears throat> uh, quite, a, quite a lengthy list of achievements uh, of uh, Raksha Mantri Manohar Parikar before he uh, gave up uh, the office and uh, switched over to Goa to become the chief minister. So it is quite obvious that uh, Mr. Parikar had an eye for detail and he was at ease with the multifaceted details of defense and uh, strategic affairs. Uh, this is what had perplexed and befuddled many uh, former defense ministers in their tenures at the helm of the defense portfolio. Uh, his IIT background no doubt would have been useful in this regard and he was described by many as a technocrat which is generally um, not, uh, I mean you don't get to see many people uh, describing any politician as a technocrat these days but uh, Manohar Parikar was a rare exception. He understood how to navigate the world of push and pull between the armed forces, the Ministry of Defense, arms vendors, and also state-run defense public sector units. He formed various committees to look into the challenges facing the armed forces and also do long-term planning while having them submit reports quickly regarding the same. <clears throat> he also helped overcome some of the neglect in the upgradation and rearmament that the armed forces had suffered through the previous dispensation in New Delhi, something that uh, Mohal elaborated on earlier. He unfortunately was not able to push through some reforms like appointment of chief of defense staff or uh, increase India's low spending on defense or even uh, a new tri-service command for space, cyber and special operations. But then the positives far outweigh the negatives during his brief tenure. <clears throat> now in addition to this, uh, we, have, we all have read quite a few articles on how uh, he was a very affable man, a very gentlemanly person who had a very uh, charming personality and people would uh, take a liking to him uh, almost instantaneously. So uh, he had a humane uh, personality and in addition to it, he also had a no-nonsense uh, uh, attitude towards his work. So uh, from us uh, at India, India Rising, uh, Sri Manohar Parikar, 1953 to 2019, Om Shanti. Okay, now let's switch topics and talk about the failed resolution at the United Nations Security Council to list Pakistan-based terror group Jaisi Mohammed's chief Masood Azhar as a global terrorist. The proposal under the uh, 1267 Al-Qaeda Sanctions Committee of the UN Security Council was moved by France, UK and the US on February 27, days after a suicide bomber of the Jaisi Mohammed killed 44 CRPF Jawans in uh, Pulwama in the state of Jammu and Kashmir, which, in, which incidentally led to a flare-up in tensions between India and Pakistan. And we have spoken about them in our previous two episodes, episodes 13 and 14. 
Now, as expected, China would, uh, it was expected that China would be the only stumbling block since uh, France had convinced all the other permanent and non-permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. Indian public and Indian media were hopeful that this time around, China would relent and allow Masood Azhar to be listed. Uh, however, China blocked the bid for the fourth time by putting a technical hold. Now, let's see how the Al-Qaeda Sanctions Committee works. The Al-Qaeda Sanctions Committee members, uh, they had 10 working days to raise any objections to the proposal. The no objection period deadline was scheduled to end at 3 p.m. local time on Wednesday, uh, uh, February 27. Now, just before the deadline, China put a technical hold on the proposal. And uh, this uh, was actually like a cliffhanger situation out there in New York, uh, where uh, just about half an hour or one hour before the deadline would expire, uh, China brought in their technical hold. In the earlier attempts, which I would elaborate on a little later, uh, China had brought in uh, their technical holds much, much earlier. At one point in time, they had raised a technical hold one day in advance and uh, and at one other at and at one another such instance they had raised a technical hold about six to seven hours in advance so this time around people were actually hopeful that china would not but then uh, just about half an hour prior to the deadline ex uh, expiration china did actually bring in a technical hold now the technical hold itself is valid for up to six months and it can again be extended by up to three months Reacting to the development, Ministry of External Affairs uh, in New Delhi expressed uh, deep disappointment. In fact, uh, India's permanent representative to the United Nations, uh, Syed Akbaruddin, tweeted saying, big, small and many, uh, one big state holds up again, uh, one small signal at the UN against uh, terror. And he also was grateful to all the uh, states, big and small, who, in, who according to him were in unprecedented numbers had joined as the co-sponsors of the effort. Now, uh, look at, let us look at the previous three attempts of uh, uh, attempts brought in by India and its friendly countries to designate uh, Masood Azhar. In 2009, India itself was a non-permanent member of the Security Council and it, brought, and it moved in a proposal to designate Azhar. Again, uh, uh, the first time around China uh, moved in a technical hold. In 2016, again, India moved the proposal with the P3, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. And uh, again, China ended up uh, playing spoil sport for India. And the third time around in 2017, the P3 nations moved, the, uh, moved a similar proposal all over again. And uh, again, the same story, China ended up uh, using its veto-wielding uh, uh, power to block India's proposal from being adopted by the sanctions committee. Now, what happens if uh, um, actually this proposal is adopted by the sanctions committee is that an assets freeze would, would uh, come into effect. And under this uh, assets freeze, all states uh, all over the world would have to freeze without delay the funds and other financial assets or economic resources of the designated individuals and entities. The travel ban uh, also entails preventing the entry into or transit by all states through their territories by the designated individuals. 
Under the arms embargo, all states are required to prevent the direct or indirect supply, sale and transfer from their territories or by their nationals outside their territories to the designated individuals and entities. So what we saw was some kind of a, a disappointment for India, but then uh, the Indian public at large and also the Indian media specifically uh, ended up uh, showing it as a major failure for Indian uh, 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 foreign policy and also uh, depicted this as a major disappointment for the country uh, hoping that uh, I mean they had hoped that uh, this would actually happen but uh, after the highs of uh, uh, Balakot uh, this uh, disappointment was too much to take possibly for the Indian media so uh, Mohal you want to talk about uh, the outrage by the yeah. Indian media and I think uh, even though China uh, did block it, I believe after a few days, France uh, did ban Masood Azhar and froze all his assets. Am I correct? Yes. So uh, technically what happened was that uh, France, who actually uh, moved this proposal on behalf of India, uh, did not, uh, uh, although knowing that uh, China blocked it, did not wait for any kind of uh, movement in the Security Council and uh, they moved in unilaterally and went ahead and uh, um, uh, and imposed an embargo on uh, the terror group and its uh, founder Masood Azhar. Yeah, it will be interesting to see in the coming days if other countries unilaterally do this without waiting for the listing by the UN. Yes, I saw a report yesterday saying that uh, Germany might also follow suit after France so one by one, India would hope that many Western powers would actually do this without waiting for uh, the recommendation coming in from the Security Council. Mm, yeah, OK. So I think um, the there was a lot of heartburn in India after the, the block by China on the listing of Masood Azhar. Now, many were. Uh, criticizing uh, the Prime Minister saying that uh, this shows that there was no Wuhan spirit and uh, uh, that uh, that uh, I guess Modi has been hoodwinked by Xi Jinping in the by hosting the Wuhan summit and there is no change in the ground. So I think what this shows is like in my opinion is that many in India don't fully grasp all the nuances of foreign policy and how it works. Now, on one hand, we see that there is too much celebration, like the over exuberance over the Wuhan summit or like a year later, or maybe not even a year later. I mean, let's say, I mean, I forget how many months ago was Wuhan. Uh, there is massive anger against the rejection of listing of Masood Azhar at the UNSC, where too much is read into every event, whether it be the Wuhan or the list, non-listing of Azhar. See, usually in like foreign policy, there are, there are not massive sudden steps where nations would change their policies on a dime, like how many would like to believe, but a series of small gradual changes over time. Now, instead of trying to see a pattern in a chain of events over a period of time, what people do is they overblow the importance of singular events, sometimes due to the nature of how it is presented in the media with like uh, 
like very clickbait type of headlines i mean people try to uh, assign undue importance to even the smallest of thing and saying oh the policy has changed from x to y or from y to x or like a 180 degree reversal it doesn't work like you have to see uh, patiently a whole series of events but in today's like uh, short attention span everybody just tries to uh, go full in on the event and think oh this is a new change in the policy so what people fail to understand is that wuhan wasn't some uh, major reset in the relations as many in the media unfortunately had called it it was basically just a time out which was called between two neighbors whose relations had nosedived in the previous couple of years uh, for example the the dolum or the doklam as many people call it uh, standoff which went over for like almost uh, 10 weeks so where the existing modus vivendi between the two big nations had failed now uh, like china was also facing pressure from us so it also saw a potential to cool off relations with india because it didn't want to be fighting on multiple fronts and india also knows that china being a much bigger power it's never uh, good to have like bad relations with a much bigger neighbor and it's better to have stable relations where the focus could be more on like transforming india internally so it was basically a time out call like hey like things are not working with uh, between us let's sit down and talk now many over interpreted the wuhan spirit and whatever came out of it in my opinion now why china didn't change the the stand on listing azar because it doesn't this listing of azar doesn't do anything for china so obviously they don't see any advantage of removing their objections for it i mean it's as plain as simple as that now if you look at the uh, fatf gray listing of pakistan which kishor i believe happened sometime last year i forget the exact month uh but like some have alleged that actually china moved on pakistan not because they were giving up on pakistan it was rather a barter for getting the vice presidency at fatf so in my opinion it might not be far fetched that pakistan might never get blacklisted because china might just put up some technical hold or some lame excuse to get them uh, uh, blacklisted now let's say as many people want like uh, masood azhar is put on the blacklist in the future now does it do anything in actuality probably not i mean hafiz said i believe after the 2611 attack has been put was put on the blacklist almost a decade ago and no visible action has been taken against him by pakistan except the few times maybe they are rounded up and put into whatever they call it like protective custody just to uh, show that they are showing some action but like once the issue blows over he's like released back and he's making like uh, speeches against india so what we need to focus on is that we need to uh, our primary goal should be on taking a series of steps which result in tangible changes in the behavior of both our adversaries versus getting into this uh, mode of either extreme jubilation or extreme sadness from the singular events of this new cycle i mean as i had argued like in like one of the previous episodes that even while dealing with pakistan or 
with china there has to be a full spectrum response it cannot be this one singular events like balakot uh, or like maybe doklam in china's case where i mean doklam wasn't a, like a there was no uh, military fighting going on but it cannot be a singular event where we base our whole theory on just a singular event it has to be a response on multiple fronts to tackle the challenges from this true primary adversaries teacher yeah uh, yeah you make uh, quite a few good point and uh, these are all uh, apt for the time we live in actually now uh, yeah i think i think in the in the near future we may have to do one more episode on the fatf grey listing of pakistan and also how the whole uh, mechanism uh, of grey listing works sure sure yeah okay so uh that's all we have for this week so come, coming to the recommendations so if you are listening to our episode for the first time each episode we recommend to you any book or article or anything we have read recently that we feel might interest you so keeping the practice going kishore uh, what's your recommendation for this week yeah mohal i think uh... I will actually uh, recommend your own article that you wrote uh, after the sad demise of uh, Manohar Parikar, where you actually uh, elaborated on how he uh, reformed uh, India's defense sector in the very, very short time that he was at the helm of the uh, ministry. So I think that would be my recommendation for this week. Thanks. For and uh, yeah. And uh, Mohal, what, what will be your recommendation for the week? So I will recommend a piece uh, from uh, Raj Chengappa. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's the, uh, I believe, the senior editor at uh, India Today Group. India Today, yes. Or, or, or the managing editor, I forget, like his designation. So there was a, a great YouTube video of how the Balakot airstrikes, like we had excellent, uh, I mean, my guess would be signal, SIGINT and human, like signal, signals intelligence and human intelligence on where the all the terrorists were, how the strikes took place. And it has covered into very much detail. There's not only a YouTube video, but also there was a, a, a detailed article in the India Today magazine, I believe this week or just the previous week. So I would recommend that uh, uh, episode on TV slash uh, print article. On the Balakot airstrikes. So uh, that, dear listeners, uh, wraps up today's episode where we covered uh, uh, Manohar Parikar's stint as the defense minister and then the failed UNSC resolution on Masood Azhar. To continue hearing about such interesting topics, uh, please do subscribe to our channel India Rising. And also tap on the bell icon to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. Uh, we would like to hear from you if you have any suggestions on any topics that you would like us to cover in the future. Uh, do remember that these topics should be directly related to Indian foreign policy. Until the next episode, this is Mohal and Kishore signing off. Mm -hmm.